Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. This is the show where you'll hear all the latest mental health-related news, anything to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports into research into the latest potential new treatments for mental illness as well as the causes along the way trying to better educate the general public about mental illness and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis. All that with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and without the hype and distortion of other media sources. And welcome again, ladies and gentlemen. Appreciate your tuning in. This is the Wednesday, September 10 edition of Psychiatry Today here in 2014. Hope you've been feeling well lately. As usual, a lot to tell you about. Anything that relates to mental health, you know that I'll bring it to you, including a lot of interesting research that brings us insights into how the brain works and uh, surprising insights into what specific structures in the brain subsume even particular personality traits. More on that later, but, you know, I always talk about trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric illness and needing treatment for it in the intro to the show. And so tonight I'm going to start with an article that looked at the issue of stigma as a barrier to obtaining mental health care. Over 60 million Americans, 60 million or more, are thought to experience mental illness in a given year, and the impacts of mental illness are undoubtedly felt by millions more in the form of family members, friends, and co-workers. Despite the availability of effective evidence-based treatment, about 40% of individuals with serious mental illness do not receive care, and many who begin an intervention fail to complete it. A new report published in Psychological Science in the Public Interest, a journal of the Association for Psychological Science, investigates stigma as a significant barrier to care for many individuals with mental illness. And while there is availability of effective treatment, I would argue that there are too many barriers to it other than just stigma, and that's why too few people get the help that they need. Now, while stigma is one of many factors that may influence care-seeking, it is one that has profound effects for those who suffer from mental illness. The prejudice and discrimination of mental illness is as disabling as the illness itself. It undermines people attaining their personal goals and dissuades them from pursuing effective treatments. One does not work long on mental health issues before recognizing the additional hardships caused by stigma. Problems in the form of poor funding for research and services compared to other illnesses, structural forms of discrimination, and widespread inaccurate and sensational media depictions 
that link mental illness with violence. Public stigma emerges when pervasive stereotypes that people with mental illness are dangerous or unpredictable, for example, lead to prejudice against those who suffer from mental illness. The desire to avoid public stigma causes individuals to drop out of treatment or avoid it entirely for fear of being associated with negative stereotypes. Public stigma may also influence the beliefs and behaviors of those closest to individuals with mental illness, including friends, family, and care providers. In this manner, it's a self-reinforcing negative feedback loop. There is the negative stigma about mental illness that's out there in the general public, and this causes people with mental illness to be self-stigmatized about admitting that they have a problem and seeking help for it. Stigma often becomes structural when it pervades societal institutions and systems. Most importantly, the health insurance industry. The fact that mental health care is not covered by health insurance to the same extent as medical care, this despite laws that are on the books mandating parity for mental health and substance abuse treatment. Uh, the laws may help to some degree, but unfortunately health insurance companies are very adept at finding loopholes in these laws and finding ways to get around having to provide sufficient coverage. And then there is also problems in terms of appropriate research. Uh, it is not funded to the same levels as medical research of other types of illnesses. These are two clear indications, the fact that it's not covered by health insurance to the same degree and the fact that mental health research isn't funded to the same levels as medical research, that stigma targeted at mental illness continues to exist at the structural level. And another negative feedback loop is that what research there has been into new medications to treat psychiatric drugs has run into a great deal of problems. Many promising new drugs have been abandoned because of the way clinical trials have to be structured according to the Food and Drug Administration's very strict specifications, it's very difficult to get what otherwise might be a promising drug to look like it works. And once the pharmaceutical companies who are researching a potential new treatment realize they aren't going to get it to work, they abandon it. And after spending maybe millions, if not billions of dollars on developing these drugs and having to abandon their efforts enough times, many big pharmaceutical companies are just getting out of psychiatric drug development altogether. Uh, so their efforts meet with failure, they stop trying, and there are fewer chances at new treatments being available. Researchers, advocates, and care providers have made gains over the past few decades 
in increasing the number of people receiving adequate and appropriate mental health care, but stigma remains a significant barrier to care. In the face of these realities, the report identifies approaches to addressing stigma that can help increase care-seeking among those with mental illness. These approaches operate at various levels, from promoting personal stories of recovery and enhancing support systems to instituting public policy solutions that enhance actual systems of care. The new report surveys existing scientific research on mental health care participation as a way of advancing efforts to eradicate the barrier of stigma. Well, there is a long way to go, even though a lot of progress has been made. The article doesn't talk about that. But there's other research that's been done. There are uh, surveys that are done periodically to gauge the general public's attitudes about mental illness. And over the last 20 years or so, there is steady, grudging, gradual lessening of stigma among the general public about mental illness and uh, more appropriate attitudes towards those who suffer psychiatric illness, including substance abuse. Uh, we can only hope that that progress continues. Uh, but again, I think the biggest barrier is too difficult to access mental health care uh, because of the poor way in which the health insurance companies cover it. Too few mental health providers accept health insurance, and therefore it becomes out of reach for a large portion of the population who cannot afford to pay out of their pocket, certainly out of reach to the portion of the population who don't have health insurance. All right, well, uh, hopefully in the future I'll be reporting more positive developments to you about the stigma associated with mental illness. Next up on tonight's show, an article about why stress is more devastating for some people than others. This comes to us from Rockefeller University. Some people take stress in stride, others are done in by it. And this new research has identified the molecular mechanisms of this so-called stress gap by looking at mice with very similar genetic backgrounds. And their findings could lead to researchers having a better understanding of the development of psychiatric disorders such as anxiety and depression. Like people, each animal goes through unique experiences as it goes through its life. These life experiences can alter the expression of certain genes and as a result affect an animal's susceptibility to stress. Mice react differently to stress, with some developing behaviors that resemble anxiety and depression, and others remaining resilient. So they hope to study the mice and learn some things that may later show to be applicable to the human brain. Their results were published in the September 2nd edition of Molecular Psychiatry, and they point the way toward potential new markers to aid the diagnosis 
of stress-related disorders such as anxiety and depression and a promising route to the development of new treatments for these disorders. In their experiments, researchers stressed the mice by exposing them to daily unpredictable bouts of cage tilting, altered dark light cycles, confinement in tight spaces, and other conditions mice dislike with a goal of reproducing the sort of stressful experiences thought to be a primary cause of depression in humans. Members of PETA, please don't call or write in. I didn't conduct the experiments. I'm just reporting about them. Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to have to take a commercial break here. We'll talk about the researchers' findings of these experiments on the mice when we get back from that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Come on. Follow Snipples to Atlanta's go-to center for breathing easy. Do you suffer from chronic sinus headaches, recurrent sinusitis, facial pain or pressure, and chronic congestion? Well, balloon sinuplasty just could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow sniffles.com. We treat the problem, not the symptom. Chronic sinus symptoms, gone. This could be the cure you're looking for. Follow me and breathe easy. This proven in-office procedure can have you breathing easy back to work the next day. And it's done under local anesthesia. Get lasting relief, a quick recovery, and start breathing easy again. Follow me and breathe easy. Follow sniffles.com. This is Peter Wallace inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on americaswebradio.com. This is David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC, your success is our goal. Addiction recovery is about more than just not using. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all aspects of your physical, psychological, and social needs. Please call us at 770-696-9862, or you can reach us on the web at www.atlantahealingcenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, the show where you get all the latest mental health-related news with your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. We are talking about some experiments that researchers at Rockefeller University did on mice to see why some animals are more susceptible to stress than others, hoping to glean insights into the human condition. Now, after the researchers stressed the mice in the initial part of the experiment, in tests to see if the mice displayed the rodent equivalent of anxiety and depression symptoms, they found about 40% of them showed high levels of behaviors that included a preference for a dark compartment over a brightly lit one or a loss of interest in sugar water the remaining 60% coped well with the stress. This distinction between the susceptible mice and the resilient ones was so fundamental that it emerged even before the mice were subjected to stress, with some unstressed mice showing an anxiety-like preference for a dark compartment over a lighted one. The researchers found that the highly stress-susceptible mice had less of an important molecule known as M-glutamine-2 in a stress-involved region of the brain known as the hippocampus. The hippocampus is also very much involved in memory. Now, this 
m glue 2 decrease was the result of a change in the expression of genes for this protein. Now, if you think of the genetic code as words in a book, the book has to be opened in order for you to read it. These changes that are made in DNA, uh, brought about by histone proteins, effectively close the book so that the code for this mglu 2 protein cannot be read and therefore the levels of it are too low. Now, currently depression is only diagnosed by its symptoms, but perhaps these results may lead to discovering molecular signatures in humans that may have the potential to serve as markers for certain types of depression. A reduction in this M-glutamine 2 protein matters because this molecule regulates the neurotransmitter glutamate. Glutamate plays a crucial role in relaying messages between brain cells as part of many important processes. Too much of it can lead to harmful structures, uh, harmful structural changes rather, in the brain. The brain is constantly changing. When stressful experiences lead to anxiety and depressive disorders, the brain becomes locked in a state it cannot spontaneously escape. Studies like this one are increasingly focusing on the regulation of glutamate as an underlying mechanism in depression and hopefully opening promising new avenues for the diagnosis and treatment of this disorder. But in any case, if there were a way to measure the levels of and or manipulate the levels of this protein in the human brain, how important and how incredible that would be to help us be able to identify who is vulnerable to stress uh, compared to others and uh, therefore might benefit from treatment that could restore normal levels of this protein. It would be a much more direct approach to treating depression and anxiety than what we have now, which really is quite a very indirect approach. We've discovered medicines that seem to alleviate the symptoms of anxiety and depression for some people, but clearly not all. And the medicines that do work actually exert a very indirect effect. Uh, they're definitely somewhat removed from the specific biochemical problem that's leading to depression and anxiety in the first place. So while research like this in mice might seem very esoteric and very far removed from benefiting humans, uh, I think it more effectively leads to potential new treatments that could specifically target what's wrong uh, when people suffer from mental illness. So that's why I felt it was important enough to tell you about it. Uh, obviously, it's quite a ways away from leading to something that someone like myself could prescribe for a patient, but an important development nonetheless. Now, let's turn our attention to some studies that look at something closer to the normal human condition. And that is 
the anguish of romantic rejection may be linked to stimulation of areas of the brain related to motivation, reward, and addiction. Now, when I first read the title uh, of this article about this research paper, I thought to myself, well, okay, that sounds like it makes sense because I've read about research in the past and discussed it on the show too. It shows that when people are in a new romance especially, some of the same areas of the brain light up as in those who are showing problems with drug addiction. Uh, it's almost as if intense romantic love drives some of the same uh, types of behaviors and certainly causes some of the same parts of the brain to light up. So let's <clears throat> take a look at what these researchers found. Breaking up, of course, really is hard to do, and this recent study, which was conducted at Stony Brook University, found evidence that it may be partly due to the areas of the brain that are active during this difficult time. The researchers looked at subjects who had a recent breakup and found that the pain and anguish they were experiencing may be linked to activation of parts of the brain associated with motivation, reward, and addiction cravings. The study was published in the July issue of the Journal of Neurophysiology. This brain imaging study of individuals who were still in love with their rejector supplies further evidence that the passion of romantic love is a goal-oriented motivation state rather than a specific emotion, noting that brain imaging showed some similarities between romantic rejection and cocaine craving. This, these findings are consistent with the hypothesis that romantic love is a specific form of addiction. And that gets back to the earlier research that I told you about before. The study also helps to explain why feelings and behaviors related to romantic rejection are difficult to control, and even why extreme behaviors associated with romantic rejection, such as stalking, homicide, suicide, and clinical depression, occur in cultures all over the world. Romantic rejection is a major cause of suicides and depression, and up till now we have known very little about it. Understanding the brain systems involved is important for advancing our basic knowledge of intense romantic love in general and of response to rejection in particular. The specific findings are significant because they tell us that the basic patterns seen in previous studies of happy love share key elements with love under these circumstances. They also tell us that what is unique to romantic rejection includes elements that are very much like craving for cocaine. The researchers used functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, to record brain activity in 15 college-age heterosexual men and women who had recently been rejected by their partners. 
Well, again, folks, uh, when you're talking about this type of research done in the university setting, college-age people are going to be the most available subjects uh, for you to conduct your research. Now, all of them reported that they were still intensely in love with that former partner, spent the majority of their waking hours thinking of the person who rejected them, and yearned for the person to return. Participants were shown a photograph of their former partner, then completed a simple math exercise to distract them from their romantic thoughts. They then viewed a photograph of a familiar, neutral person. Doesn't exactly sound like a benign procedure, does it? Uh, for those who are that intensely sad about the breakup to have to look at a photograph of that person, uh, you could argue uh, is certainly somewhat cruel to a degree. The researchers found that viewing photographs of their former partners stimulated several key areas of the participants' brains to a greater degree than when they looked at photos of neutral persons. Now we'll take a look at the areas of the brain they found were stimulated. One is the ventral tegmental area in the midbrain. This area controls motivation and reward, and it's known to be involved in the feelings of romantic love. Then there's the nucleus accumbens and the orbitofrontal prefrontal cortex. Now the nucleus accumbens, folks, this is the pleasure and reward center of our brains. The, um, <clears throat> that and the other area, orbitofrontal prefrontal cortex, are associated with craving and addiction. Specifically, the dopamine reward system evident in cocaine addiction. Dopamine is our pleasure and reward brain chemical. And the third area was an area called the insular cortex and anterior cingulate. These are areas of the brain associated with physical pain and distress. Interesting that the areas uh, that seem to be stimulated by the photograph of the former lover associated with physical pain, not just psychic pain. I found that almost as fascinating as the fact that the similar areas uh, light up that are involved in addiction to things, uh, even including cocaine. So it shows that intense romantic love seems to function much like an addiction. It's like the person is addicted to the person that they're in love with. But that doesn't tell us one way or the other whether the desire to be in love in general is an addiction. All right, we will wrap up our thoughts on this study when we get back from our next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. For years, Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center has been providing outstanding care to patients of all ages. They are dedicated to patient satisfaction and have been the recipient of the Georgia Otolaryngology Association Patient Satisfaction Award. They welcome any questions you may have about their services. Their practice includes treatment of asthma, allergies, sleep apnea, snoring, hearing impairments, and chronic sinus disease. Dr. Elena George is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Her training in New York has included training at Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital and Memorial Sloan 
Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She believes in practicing both the art and science of medicine. All patients are seen by Dr. George. All treatment options are discussed, and time will be spent to answer all questions. Their office is located in Atlanta at 1776 Peachtree Road in Suite 260 North Tower, two blocks south of Piedmont Hospital. They are open Monday through Friday, 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. Additional details are available at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. At Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, you can be confident that you are in good hands with their professional team. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. And before the break, we talked about a study showing that romantic rejection shows up in the brain similar to the effects of addiction. Now, just to wrap up our thoughts about this, some of what has been learned over the years in studying this issue may actually wind up being useful in helping people attempting to recover from drug addiction. This study also provided some evidence for the old saying that time heals all wounds. Researchers found that as time passed, the uh, an area of the brain associated with emotional attachment, the right ventral putamen pallidum area, showed less activity when the participants viewed photographs of their former partners. So that's also very interesting. Uh, But again, it just shows how science is learning more and more about specific areas and structures in the brain uh, that subsume definite emotions associated with specific behaviors Uh, So while the brain certainly is extremely complex and difficult to understand at times, it's fascinating to see the tools that researchers have and how they can gain insights into human emotion and behavior. Next up on tonight's show, um, an article that 
talks about addiction concerns with marijuana all over the country. Medical marijuana laws are being liberalized. There are laws being put on the books to decriminalize marijuana, allow for uh, recreational use of small amounts, uh, selling it legally. There are definitely going to be consequences of this. So I think it's true that as pot smoking rises, so do addiction concerns. Medical marijuana use is now legalized in nearly half of the states, and recreational use is allowed in both Colorado and Washington. This comes a, a, there comes with this, rather, a growing buzz of concern about what more pot smoking might mean for the health of society at large. This past week has already brought worry over the possibility of more traffic fatalities, with researchers divided on how marijuana may or may not affect one's driving skills. And even in Colorado and Washington, they're struggling to come up with ways to test and thresholds uh, for DUI with marijuana. Now, <clears throat> a small and but striking study of marijuana's addictive qualities in teens has been released. It found that 40% of those in an outpatient treatment program for pot use exhibited withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal symptoms are a hallmark of drug dependence. There's a lot of misperception out there that marijuana is not addictive. For decades, it has been thought that, well, it's not really an addiction to marijuana because there's no physical dependence. At, uh, at best, there may be, or most rather, I should say there's a psychological dependence, but since there's no physical dependence, it's not an, an addiction. However, it produces both a physical and psychological dependence in a similar way to that of other drugs, along with its own characteristic withdrawal symptoms. The most general hint of addiction tends to be the psychological craving for more caused by the physical neurobiological change in the brain as it becomes accustomed to the presence of the drug. Now, this study looked at 127 adolescents. Uh, these kids were between the ages of 14 to 19, and they were being treated at an outpatient substance abuse clinic. 90% of them said marijuana was their drug of choice. All were assessed and surveyed, both immediately and then again three, six, and 12 months later, on certain aspects, including whether or not they thought the drug was causing problems in their lives, and also various psychiatric symptoms. 84% met diagnostic criteria for cannabis dependence, with 40% reporting withdrawal symptoms such as anxiety, irritability, depression, and difficulty sleeping. Interestingly, of those who experienced withdrawal symptoms, the ones who were unconvinced that any of their problems were related to the drug had the toughest time quitting. So let's review that. The withdrawal symptoms 
for marijuana, anxiety, irritability, depression, and difficulty sleeping. And again, the ones who were the least convinced that they had any problem were the ones most likely to have the toughest time quitting. Now, of course, the study was a small one, and it covered ground about marijuana addiction that has been examined before. But it's notable both because of the length of the follow-up period, okay, 3, 6, and 12 months later, and that because the subjects were moderate addicts requiring just outpatient care. Now, the impetus for the study, which was funded by the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, NIAAA is a government health agency. Uh, this had nothing to do with um, any university and likewise had certainly nothing to do with any pharmaceutical company. Uh, it was published online in the Journal of Addiction Medicine, and it's important to add information about addiction to the discussion of legalization of marijuana and its public health impacts. What we know with alcohol and tobacco will be true with any drug. Make it cheaper and more accessible, and consumption goes up. Do we want to introduce another drug with potentially negative social and health effects? Do the benefits of legalization and increasing the availability and decreasing the cost outweigh the downside? The debate needs to be fully informed, and we need the clinical side saying this is not a benign substance. The cognitive impacts, especially with teens, have been shown to have lifelong implications. That is, regular heavy users in their teens suffer damage to cognitive functions like memory and attention and concentration. Legalization is sure to bring millions of new cases of addiction. The rates of addiction and harm will go up. People need to be prepared for that. But the argument on the other side is those who are lobbying for legalization, who find the warnings to be exaggerated and unfair. <clears throat> According to NORML, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, they make the argument that context is necessary when discussing issues around cannabis's potential dependence liability. Normal is um, it's been around for 44 years, advocating for the decriminalization of marijuana. Do a minority of people who experiment with cannabis at some point in their lives exhibit symptoms of drug dependence? According to the National Academy of Science Institute of Medicine, in a 1999 report, about 9% do. But normal feels that low percentage hardly justifies the criminalization of cannabis or its classification as a Schedule I substance under federal law, a schedule that defines marijuana as possessing, quote, a high potential for abuse equal to that of heroin. In fact, normal claims just the opposite is true. 
The deputy director of Normal argues that pot is actually far less addictive than either alcohol or tobacco, and that withdrawal symptoms tend to be short-lived. But legalization, which seems to be inevitable, demands a delicate approach. If more of a substance is used, there are probably going to be more negative consequences. We are passing through an interesting period in America. We believe drugs are bad and dangerous, and at the same time, we're legalizing them. The challenge here is making drug use socially acceptable. But I think the evidence from all the laws being passed is that that's already happening. Well, we'll see what happens. Of course, uh, there are going to be arguments on either side. But uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, this experiment is happening. And uh, all physicians and scientists can do is sit back and observe what are the consequences of greater uh, legalization and decriminalization of marijuana use. Next on Psychiatry Today. Childhood trauma could lead to adult obesity. Now, adult obesity is well known to be a very severe problem in this country. Almost two-thirds of people are at least overweight or obese. And these researchers have found that, at least in some of the obese, part of the problem could be childhood trauma sowing the seeds of obesity later in life. Uh, they found that being subjected to abuse during childhood entails a markedly increased risk of developing obesity as an adult. This is the conclusion of an analysis done on multiple previous studies, which all totaled included 112,000 participants. This analysis was conducted by research at the very prestigious Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and it was published in the journal Obesity Reviews. The study clearly shows that difficult life events leave traces which can manifest as disease much later in life. The mechanisms behind this process include stress, negative patterns of thought and emotions, poor mental health, increased inflammation, which we know all of those things cause, as well as lowered immune function and metabolism. Now, <clears throat> we'll talk about how the researchers conducted their analysis of previous research and a little more detail into how they arrived at these conclusions when we come back from our next commercial break. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that sleep is an important weapon against infection? Sleep is important because it is restorative. During sleep, known as REM, the body recuperates and resets. For example, the immune system increases its activity and stress hormones drop. There is a correlation between sleep deprivation and frequent colds. The average adult should get 7 to 8 hours of uninterrupted sleep per night, and a child needs more since they are growing. Sleep hygiene is important to set a good foundation. Techniques to promote good quality restorative sleep include going to bed at the same time at night, avoiding alcohol or caffeine prior to bedtime, 
avoiding exercise in the evening, reading to a young child at bedtime, avoidance of drinking fluids late in the evening, and avoidance of taking decongestants at bedtime. If you are having problems sleeping more than once a week, you should see a doctor for further evaluation. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America. WebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about a study showing that childhood abuse can lead to obesity in adulthood. Now, when the researchers did this analysis, again, they looked at about 23 studies, a total of 112,000 participants. They found that the risk of obesity was 34% higher among adults who had been subjected to abuse as children than among non-abused adults. When categorized based on different forms of abuse, the study showed that physical abuse during childhood increased the risk of obesity by 28%, emotional abuse by 36%, sexual abuse by 31%, and general abuse by 45%. Among those who had been subjected to severe abuse, the risk increased by 50% compared to 13% for moderate abuse. Now, don't have the details what constitutes general abuse, what constitutes moderate versus mild versus severe, but the point is, uh, at least by a third or, or more, uh, the risk of having been, or rather having been abused, increases the risk of adult obesity. Now, not everyone who is subjected to abuse will develop obesity. And also, not all obese individuals have been abused. So, obviously, there are other causes. Between 5 and 10% of the adult population say that they have been subjected to some form of abuse during childhood. Stressful childhood experiences increase the risk of obesity via psychological and emotional factors. These factors impact negatively on appetite regulation, metabolism, eating behavior, sleep, inflammation, which is caused by stress, and cognitive function, which in the way, um, which pave the way for obesity. But, uh, this shows that obesity may have many other causes besides just a sedentary lifestyle or overeating. The authors feel our current view of both the occurrence and treatment of obesity is far too narrow since we talk almost exclusively about diet and exercise. They say these new studies indicate that we need to take a much more comprehensive approach in the treatment and prevention of obesity, giving more consideration to an individual's childhood, as well as psychological and emotional aspects. It 
can, for example, be about self-esteem and self-image, thought patterns, emotional stress factors, and mental illness or health. And there may be a need for psychotherapy or cognitive therapy to obtain lasting positive effects on obesity. I would have to say I agree that that's true, that uh, there are many psychological and emotional and cognitive factors that uh, go into many cases of obesity and uh, a, a more comprehensive approach taking these aspects into account definitely would be helpful. Now, we'll stick with sort of a, a children's mental health theme and talk about the benefit of family dinners for teens' mental health. And, you know, we've known that positive association for quite some time, but this article is specifically about how regular family dinners can help protect teens from cyberbullying, which is associated with mental health and substance abuse problems in adolescence. Family dinners may help protect teens from the, the consequences of cyberbullying, as well as being beneficial for their mental health in general. About one in five adolescents has experienced recent online bullying and cyberbullying. Like traditional bullying, it can increase the risk of mental health problems in teens, as well as the misuse of drugs and alcohol. It is important to understand whether cyberbullying contributes uniquely to mental health and substance abuse problems independent of its overlap with traditional face-to-face -face bullying. Family dinners are an outlet of support for adolescents. Study authors examined the association between cyberbullying and mental health and substance abuse problems as well as any moderation of the effects by family contact and communication through family dinners. The study included survey data on almost 19,000 students, pretty good sample size. They were between the ages of 12 to 18 from 49 schools in a Midwestern state. The authors measured five what were called internalizing problems, anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicidal thinking, and suicide attempts. And they measured two ex what were called externalizing problems, fighting and vandalism, and they measured four different types of substance use problems, frequent alcohol use, frequent binge drinking, prescription drug misuse, and over-the-counter drug misuse. Nearly 19% of the students reported that they had experienced cyberbullying during the previous 12 months. Cyberbullying was associated with all 11 of the internalizing, externalizing, and substance use problems. Family dinners appeared to moderate the relationship between cyberbullying and the mental health and substance use problems. For example, with four or more family dinners per week, there was about a fourfold difference in the rates of total problems between no cyberbullying victimization 
and frequent victimization. When there were no dinners, the difference was more than sevenfold. Based on these findings, the authors did not conclude that cyberbullying alone is sufficient to produce poor health outcomes, nor that family dinners alone can inoculate adolescents from such exposures. That would be an oversimplified interpretation of these associations, which disregards other aggravating and also protective factors throughout the social environment. Instead, their findings support calls for integrated approaches to protecting victims of cyberbullying that encompass individual coping skills and family and school social supports. The article highlights the importance of cyberbullying in relation to mental health concerns, with particular interest in the role of families. And although it's difficult for parents to keep tabs on their kids' online lives, if parents are, ap are conscientious about it, they may play a greater role in preventing and helping to intervene in cyberbullying situations by stepping up their monitoring efforts. Um, not easy to do for parents, admittedly. Now... <clears throat> I told you before we were going to talk more about interesting insights that neuroscience gives us into human behavior. Well, what about a possible neurobiological basis for the trade-off between honesty and self-interest? What's the price on your integrity? Everyone has a tipping point. We all want to be honest, but at some point we'll lie if the benefit is great enough. Now scientists have confirmed the area of the brain in which we make that decision. The result was published online this past week in Nature Neuroscience. The lead author says we prefer to be honest even if lying is beneficial. How does the brain make the choice to be honest even when there is a significant cost to it? Previous studies have shown that brain areas behind the forehead called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and orbitofrontal cortex become more active during functional brain scanning when a participant is told to lie or to be honest. But there's no way to know if these parts of the brain are engaged because an individual is lying or because he or she prefers to be honest. This time, researchers asked a different question whether there's a switch in the brain that controls the cost and benefit trade-off between honesty and self-interest. The answer to the question, they hope, would help shed light on the nature of honesty and human preferences. They compared decisions of healthy participants with decisions made by those with damaged dorsolateral prefrontal cortex or orbitofrontal cortex, who you would assume to have more trouble making these choices. They had volunteers decide between honesty and self-interest in an economic signaling game. In one game, they presented participants with an option that gave them more money at a cost to an anonymous opponent and an option that gave the opponent more money at a cost to them. Unsurprisingly, participants chose the option that filled their own pockets. In a different game, Participants had the same options, but they were asked to send a message to their opponents 
recommending one option over the, un the other. The participants either lie and reap the reward or tell the truth and suffer a loss. The average person usually shows lie aversion. If they don't need to send a message, they prefer the option that gives them more money. But if they do, they're more likely to send a message that will benefit the other person, even at a loss to themselves. They want to be honest, even at their own cost. Now, the people with the damage to these parts of the brain were not as averse to lying. They were more likely to pick the practical option, less concerned about the potential cost to their self-image. In a game where no message was required, participants with the damage showed the same pattern of decision-making, suggesting that for each group, the tendency to give to others is the same. It suggests that this area of the brain, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, known to be involved in cognitive control, may play a causal role in enabling honest behavior. Previous studies were unable to control for an important distinction. In the past, they were instructed to be honest or to lie, but without the consequence. This study is able to see how a person's trade-offs change when they add that responsibility. Now, <clears throat> they were able to show that this area of the brain is involved in making these decisions. And hopefully this will shed some light on honesty or the lack thereof. Now that is going to wrap it up for tonight's show. And again, I hope you found these interesting insights into the brain and behavior uh, informative. I certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. And I hope that until we get together again next week, you have a wonderful and stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.